When billionaires like Jeff Bezos headed into space this summer, the view of the next frontier reached new heights. I wanted to go on this flight because it's a thing I've wanted to do all my life. It's an adventure. It's a big deal for me. Their resources, plus a dash of geopolitics, have helped put new resources in space within reach. NASA is now preparing its new moon rocket for the first test launch in the months ahead. We had to step way back to get a good look at the most powerful rocket ever built. The space race was once decided by the wealth of nations. But now, its future is determined more and more by ultra-wealthy individuals worth more than many countries. The free market is coming for the stars, and it's reshaping the laws of outer space, at least the ones made by humans. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. This week and next, we're re-airing some of our favorite episodes. This one, from July, stuck with us because the conversation over billionaires and their celestial adventures is only heating up. The first person I talked to is someone familiar with both the private space companies and NASA in the U.S. I'm Dr. Lucianne Walkowicz, and I'm an astronomer at the Adler Planetarium in Chicago, and I'm the co-founder of the Just Space Alliance. I wanted to talk to Dr. Walkowicz about a target that these private companies have in common with agencies like NASA, the moon. NASA's new mission to the moon is called Artemis. NASA hopes to establish a base for humans called Artemis Base Camp with the infrastructure for long-term exploration of the moon. So there has been a lot of renewed interest in space exploration, and a lot of it centers on the moon. Why so much interest in a return to the moon? You know, that's an interesting question because I think it depends on who you ask. I think that the, much like the original moon program, it's largely about geopolitics and not about exploration. Even though the moon is an interesting place to study, there's no scientific necessity for people to go there and do it. I think the moon has received a great deal of focus in the past few years in part because it is easily accessible and there are more clear-cut business cases for the moon. The Artemis missions should eventually lead to search lunar soil for Earth-shattering scientific discoveries with economic benefits too. The U.S. Artemis program aims to establish a lunar base camp on the south pole of the moon. It would allow long-term stays by multiple astronauts. And it's a test run for making it possible for deeper space exploration, including to Mars. As part of the Artemis Moon to Mars program, for the first time in over 50 years, our astronauts will return to the lunar surface to establish a permanent presence and the launching pad to Mars. And the first nation to land on Mars will be the United States of America. So we can't have this conversation without bringing up a few names, the names of U.S.-based tech billionaires like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk. Of course, there is also Richard Branson. How has their involvement 
changed the U.S. space industry. Has it? Yeah, it's interesting to talk about these sort of space billionaires like Bezos and Musk. When you look at companies like Blue Origin, which is Jeff Bezos's company, or SpaceX, which is Elon Musk's, to some extent, these companies are still doing what the older, more stodgy, less heavy on the marketing defense contractors did back in the day, which is trying to vie for government contracts to go to space. However, there has also been this very large marketing push, particularly coming out of SpaceX, to assert that they are doing this more independently, that in in some people's perception that they are going to replace NASA, when the fact of the matter is that they're still vying for NASA contracts. And most notably, SpaceX was just given a very large NASA contract that Blue Origin, you know, also <laughs> contested and vied for the same contract. NASA has chosen SpaceX to return us to the moon. I am so excited to partner with SpaceX in this fantastic endeavor for the Artemis suite of missions. SpaceX has taken a big bite out of the cost of rocket launches. For the International Space Station, for example, SpaceX rockets cost NASA 95% less than what they were paying before. And now, SpaceX has a multi-billion dollar contract for the Artemis program going ahead. There's sort of the marketing push that says that these companies are more autonomous than they are. But then I also think that there's a fair amount of lobbying behind the scenes to actually make them more autonomous than private companies have traditionally been. Dr. Walkowicz sees that reflected in changes to the legal landscape of space in ways that would create more of a potential for profit. For example, if you want people to be able to make money for their companies in space, then they have to be able to take resources. And I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that's a motivation that is very much driven by private industry and not, for example, scientific exploration. I think our listeners and I might look up at the moon and be interested in its craters or go outside and marvel at a supermoon. But someone like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos might look up and see a potential gold mine or a stepping stone to future planets and future gold mines. What resources are on the moon that we should know about? So the moon has been in focus for potential mining applications, primarily for helium-3. This is a form of helium that is used in a lot of laboratory applications and in engineering that could be very useful for humans. We have it here on Earth. It's just that we might be able to get more of it on the moon. Some scientists believe that helium-3 could be an energy resource potentially worth trillions of dollars. And there might be enough of it on the moon to power Earth's energy needs for at least two centuries. Helium-3 costs roughly like several billion dollars a ton. None of this is guaranteed since no one has ever done it, and mining the moon could have big challenges. But the possibility is enough that some nations are searching for it. 
The moon also has the possibility of being a place that teaches us about extracting oxygen or water. And that's of interest for people who really would like for humans to go on long distance exploration in space. So anytime you can reduce the amount of things you have to bring with you into space by using things in your immediate surroundings, it makes it easier and cheaper to go into space. And that's where a future piloted Mars mission comes in. That's years, if not decades away. But in terms of extracting the moon's resources, the technological and political maneuvering are already at hand. Along with the Artemis program, the U.S. is also leading an international agreement called the Artemis Accords. It's meant to lay out rules of cooperation for nations joining onto the program, and it's shaping a new alliance in the space race. A legal blueprint for mining on the moon. The proposed international agreement is called the Artemis Accords, and it aims to cultivate allies around NASA's plan to put humans and space stations on the moon within the next decade. The Artemis Accords were originally signed just last year by the United States, Australia, Canada, Luxembourg, Japan, the UK, Italy, and the UAE. And since then, the Ukraine, New Zealand, Brazil, and South Korea have um, signed on as well. And just as importantly, perhaps, which countries have not? Well, notably, uh, China nor Russia are signatories on the Artemis Accord. Instead, China and Russia have made their own plans. Russia and China's space agencies have unveiled plans to develop a lunar research station together. They want to put their research facilities on the surface of the moon or in its orbit. Their aim is to have it be operational by 2036. And they're unlikely to be part of the Artemis Accords. I asked Dr. Walkowicz to explain. So the Artemis Accords have created a bit of a splash in the world of space law, which is not a term that I think many people use very often or spend their time thinking about. So what do Earth residents need to know about space law and how the Artemis Accords play into that? Well, I think you're absolutely right that people don't spend that much time thinking about space law, if any time at all. And I think space law is really interesting in that it has some parallels with law here on Earth. But it's also fundamentally a a different domain. The main thing that you need to know about space law is that back in 1967, there was this treaty, the Outer Space Treaty, that really set forward the international vision of what space was for and about. Soviet Ambassador Smidovsky acted for Moscow. On the right sat the American Chargé d'Affaires. So far, 31 nations have joined in the treaty. Between West and East, This is the best cooperation for a long time. And the Outer Space Treaty, I actually encourage people to read it. It doesn't sound like a lot of fun reading an international (laughs) treaty, but it's very readable. And it also, um, I think, has a very optimistic and hopeful quality to it. The exploration and use of outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies, shall be carried out for the benefit and in the interests of all countries irrespective of their degree of economic or scientific development, and shall be the province of all mankind. So it puts forward certain provisions like that space is the domain of all humankind. It says mankind because it's from 1967. It says things like you can't put weapons of mass destruction in space. 
You can't own a celestial body or parts thereof. Mm. It's really stood this test of time. It's still the most important document in space law. But it's also uh, this very optimistic, peaceful picture of space as a shared domain of human prosperity. The Artemis Accords affirms the Outer Space Treaty, but it also allows resources on celestial bodies to be extracted. Whether this is a contradiction of the Outer Space Treaty or a different interpretation of it really depends on your interests in claiming those resources. Whether you're from the U.S., Russia, or a state with no space program at all, Though the Outer Space Treaty does have this egalitarian language in it, it took a lot of pushing to get there, mostly from countries from the Global South, countries that didn't want states like the U.S. or the Soviet Union, which had developed space technology sooner, to enjoy all the spoils or set all the rules. This is Lisa Ruth Rand a historian at the California Institute of Technology who focuses on the environment of outer space. The Outer Space Treaty was conceived and developed by and for the benefit of a very small group of wealthy, powerful nations, which again was the subject of criticism and resistance by nations that were not part of that club. She sees similar criticism in what's happening with resource extraction in the Artemis Accords. So what seems to be happening here is the kind of overt articulation of that imbalance that was always there. It's just coming out and saying it and making it very clear that if you have enough money and power, you can do whatever you want, which happens everywhere, not just in outer space. It seems to me like it's articulating the treaty in a way that becomes more exclusive and allows for more free market rules to apply that as long as you have the ability to get to the moon and to extract the resources, you're free to take them. In the U.S., Dr. Rand says, there's been interest in getting back to the moon for a long time, but not in paying for it. And now it's private companies laying that groundwork. There are individuals who have wealth that exceeds national resources of some countries, right? Like you have individuals with space programs, which is something that only states could do before. The fortunes of Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk each exceeds the GDP of close to 50 countries. And that individual power is what crossed Dr. Rand's mind when she saw a quote on the SpaceX website. There's this quote that says, SpaceX was founded under the belief that a future where humanity is out exploring the stars is fundamentally more exciting than one where we are not, Elon Musk. Well, I think that sums it up right there, right? The way we were doing it before I came along, it didn't really count. This counts. The way that I'm doing it, this is the exciting stuff. It's not that we weren't exploring the stars before Elon Musk. We certainly were. But these hyper-wealthy individuals, they're seeking to shape the way that we explore the stars, right? Which isn't to say that there aren't a lot of people who really agree with Elon Musk. I've been a space nerd my whole life. I'm, I'm thrilled by the idea of expanding space travel But when you have anyone with outsized wealth, with the same level of power as a state, as a nation, things get a little bit tricky. Most of the other nations who've signed the Artemis Accords are more junior partners to the U.S. space program. But for Russia, the second largest space program in the world, the Artemis Accords may be less enticing. 
There seems to be a bit of a, a Wild West mentality that whoever gets there first can stake a claim. But many countries now are developing their own space program, so the field is going to get crowded. And others don't have those programs at all. So what claim do they have to the moon? There's actually a book written by a space ethicist named Tony Milligan called Nobody Owns the Moon. (laughs) And that's actually true. Even the Outer Space Treaty, which says that space is a domain for the benefit of all humankind, is not actually totally correct. Space is a place that exists on its own. The moon existed long before human beings and will exist long after. So regardless of what human beings put into law, technically speaking, nobody owns the moon. And even if you take it from the Outer Space Treaty, nobody is allowed to own the moon either. (laughs) You know, the Wild West mentality is only a positive thing if you are a person who has benefited from colonization. The colonial attitudes that are brought into space exploration, I think, are are very prominent in the way that we talk about the moon. Now, the moon has held significance to human cultures for millennia that have nothing to do with being able to go to its surface, have nothing to do with, with its extractive monetary value, And in some sense, nobody owns it. And in some sense, it belongs to many people. I think it just depends on how you look at it. So much of our history in space seems to have been about shared human cooperation, human ingenuity, even during international conflicts like the Cold War. And in the U.S. growing up, You know, I heard a lot about what space means for all of humankind. Do you think that kind of philosophy is changing or will change as space becomes more profitable and potentially more privatized? There is, I would say, a definite push to put a very much like free market capitalist framework around space. And it's no accident, right, that this comes out of Silicon Valley, which has a very like libertarian-leaning viewpoint on what companies are and do in the world. And that, I think, particularly in Silicon Valley, mixes with this sort of heady techno-utopian thinking. But space, you know, (laughs) is not that just because some individuals think that it is. And it remains true that SpaceX and Blue Origin are companies that operate on Earth. They are workplaces. And when we look at, for example, Blue Origin is owned by Jeff Bezos, who owns Amazon, who has been in the news all this past year for their extreme measures to crush their employees' unionization efforts. You know, we're coming out of a year in which Extractive capitalism has really, I I think the bones and the machinery have been laid bare by the very uneven ways in which the pandemic has affected not only citizens within the United States, but also people around the world. And I think that there are questions that we can ask about whether we want to extend that off-world. And so... When we look at the companies that are trying to build these futuristic visions in space, we shouldn't just look at, you know, fancy marketing graphics of rockets taking off or even videos of rockets taking off. 
We should also look at the kinds of conditions that they are creating for people that work for and with them here on Earth and ask whether that is the future that we want. And Dr. Rand says it's also worth questioning how likely these grand plans are to happen, given all the challenges ahead. But if they do, she says as a historian, she sees a colonial pattern repeating. I don't quite see how, with the way things stand right now, how that won't happen anew with these new efforts and with these new agreements that are, by their very nature, excluding those who don't have the power and resources to shape these rules. Unfortunately, I see this as being a kind of another rhyme of history in this particular moment. This is still a colonial moment, even if it's not the same as going to a place where there are people to be colonized. And that's The Take. This episode was originally produced by Alexandra Locke with Nikine Oliai, Dina Kispe, Amy Walters, Priyanka Tilve, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tom Benton is our editor. Aya Enmilek is our engagement producer. And Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. Special thanks to Haris Dharani 